Hello, welcome to the Benito Juarez Experience. I'm Luciano. And Joanne. And today we have a special guest. Yes, so today we have a special guest whose name is Professor Daniel Tagliarina, who is an assistant professor of government at Utica College in New York. Professor Tagliarina earned his bachelor's degree in political science from Bowling Green State University and his master's and PhD in political science from the University of Connecticut. His research interests include American constitutional law, religion and politics, law and society, and human rights. And yes, we also went to grad school together. So Dan, thank you for coming and welcome to the Benito Juarez experience. Thank you and thank you for having me. So today we are going to talk about a special issue that was in the news last month. As of the date of the recording, it's been almost exactly, I think it's been a little over a month since the Supreme Court case was decided. We are going to be talking about Trinity versus Comer today. The formal name of the Supreme Court case is Trinity Lutheran v. Comer. And the Supreme Court case actually has a long and very fascinating history. In order to start this off, I wanted to give our listeners the opportunity to know a little bit about the case. It started officially in 2012 when the Trinity Lutheran Church in Mississippi applied for a state grant to resurface its playground. The idea was that because of the strong application status of the daycare <coughs> operated by a church applied, people believed that it was going to get the money in order for it to put I think in order for it to put rubber over its playground, which would objectively help make the playground just a little bit safer. However, what ended up happening is that it was rejected. It was rejected because of <clears throat> it was rejected because largely because daycare was owned and operated by a church. A church is a specific type of religious organization, not a general religious organization and has specific benefits attached to it. Some of the specific benefits are worth noting. We're ultimately going to talk about them a little bit later on in the episode. But the Supreme Court case was decided last month, and it was said that any it was said basically that if a religious organization applies for a grant such as this or any other access to public funds that are objectively secular in their purpose it is possible for these funds to be given to the organization. And it is now, at least according to the Supreme Court, considered unconstitutional for them to be rejected solely on the grounds that they are a specific type of religious organization. So this Supreme Court case is very interesting for a variety of reasons, one of the most notable of which is that Missouri recently got a new governor who decided that this was no longer a controversial issue. And in previous instances, when something like this has happened, it's not unknown for the Supreme Court case to stop altogether. One of the reasons why this is actually particularly fascinating to me as someone who reads, writes, and studies separation of church and state and policy is that this court case was largely deemed non-controversial up until the moment that it was really decided. There are people, such as a few writers for The Atlantic, who argue that this shouldn't have been the big deal that it was. One specific writer is named Garrett Epps, 
and he originally believed that the court should have stayed out of the case altogether. And I'm wondering if that's something that the two of you as other scholars and writers on this topic have opinionated, have written about in the past. Do you think that that's a valid position to hold? I would say, yeah, uh, honestly, for uh, starters, the lower courts were all in agreement. Uh, previous cases seemed to support that idea, and it didn't on its face seem like it was going to be a big deal. But once the court decided to step in and they get to pick which cases of you know, tens of thousands that are uh, petitioned to them to hear, once they made that decision, it was clearly going to be a bigger deal. But I, I think Epps uh, has a point. I all, I mean, to some extent, I'm not a kind of like a legal scholar, but I, I have had my questions about, you know, how how important is this case, and whether it's because it's deemed so innocuous that it's actually important because of that reason. I've seen some some people argue that, at least in the Twitter sphere. Uh, but yeah, I think at first sight that uh, I wasn't sure why the why the court was actually hearing this particular case. So one of the things that I know anyone who reads and writes about this issue, who listens to this particular episode of the podcast, is going to talk about, is something that I wanted to bring up. So Garrett Epps, who is one of the writers for The Atlantic, as I previously mentioned, wrote a really interesting article about this. And in it, Garrett reminds readers that the rejection for the grant, which originally set off this firestorm that would come back to be a major topic five years after it started, was that the rejection of the grant was not because the daycare was religious. That is not the case. The rejection directly relates to the fact that it is controlled by a specific church. The daycare appears to have originally been owned and operated by a separate religious nonprofit, which was not a direct part of the church. And if that had been the case, it's believed that the rejection would have changed and it actually would have been an acceptance. Okay, uh, yeah, the history is really interesting because when the uh, church applied for the, the program that uh, reimburses funds for playground resurfacing, and they said, you know, part of the church and everything. Uh, they were told that they were unlikely to get it because they were owned by a church, but that religious organizations in the past had received it, and uh, I think there was seven or some previously uh, religious organizations that weren't specific churches that had received funds. So, it, again, like the problem was that this was a church own daycare, church-run daycare, that puts it into a different perspective. It wasn't like a uh, religiously affiliated hospital or other sorts of religious organizations. It was the fact that it was a specific house of worship. Yeah, since, since we're talking about the fact that it's a specific house of worship, it's worth noting that at the very least some writers on this issue most writers on this issue that I'm aware of have argued things about the um, the establishment clause, which <clears throat> has largely been considered 
to be a legal argument against giving churches or nondescript houses of worship, which obviously would include things like synagogues, mosques, and other temples, from receiving direct taxpayer dollars. One of the reasons that this has largely been the case is because throughout the United States' history, churches have not had to pay taxes. And despite what a lot of people believe about nonprofits, not all nonprofits are tax exempt. There are actually many nonprofits which do pay taxes. It's just that churches are one specific type of nonprofit that is considered tax exempt. And I have a feeling that any readers who are, any listeners who are not as well versed in separation of church and state issues might get those two things confused. But it is very important as we proceed into this conversation that we realize that they are not the same thing. Yeah, I, I have actually a question for Dan, uh, which is, I want to shift gears a little bit. And so Dan has so far written two pieces in the Utica College website, right? So far. Uh, sorry? I said, yeah, so far. Um, there, there's yeah. more to come. But. Okay. So I think one of the, you know, the, the, there's that piece, which I don't remember if it's the first or the second, in which you go into analyzing the the differences between the major the, the people in the majority uh, because the, the the majority opinion was written by chief justice roberts if i'm not wrong that's correct but there were so, but not everybody joined that decision and there were very nuanced but important differences in those uh concurrent opinions and I wonder if you can expand on what those differences were. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So Roberts wrote for the majority. Uh, the case ultimately came down where there were only two dissenters, but not everyone agreed with all of Roberts' opinion. So uh, first off, Breyer wrote uh, what's known as a concurring in the judgment opinion, meaning he agreed with the final decision, the legal outcome that the church should be allowed access to the funds, but wrote for completely different reasons. So I'll double back to Breyer, which then leaves six other justices joining Robert's opinion, uh, except Roberts plus three of or yeah, Roberts plus three of those joined in full. So Thomas and Gorsuch then come along and join all of Robert's opinion except for one short little footnote which then each of those, uh, both Thomas and, uh, Thomas and Gorsuch, wrote separately to explain their other positions on this. So Roberts for the Court says the church has been discriminated against uh, because it's a religious institution, and that violates the free exercise clause. He's joined by five other justices in whole on that. The footnote, which is seems like such a minor point, and I'll actually read it in, in its entirety because it's all of two sentences, is this case in, involves express discrimination based on religious identity with respect to playground resurfacing. We do not address religious uses of funding or other forms of discrimination. So Roberts includes this footnote that just says, listen, we're not getting into 
other ways in which the state might be providing funds for anything else. So let's not go crazy about this opinion. So Roberts is already sensitive to some of those issues that we talked about in terms of how big of an opinion this is and why it matters. Thomas and Gorsuch refused to join just those two sentences. And then Thomas writes and talks about a different case, uh, and Gorsuch joins them, and Gorsuch writes separately, and Thomas joins them, and Gorsuch provides the two reasons why they don't join this footnote. And it basically boils down to both Gorsuch and Thomas want the court to address those other funding issues in this case, and they think this case is much broader than Roberts is saying it is. So they think this says, yeah, governments can give money to churches and that's fine. And that's what they want the court to say. It's not actually what Roberts says. Then Breyer comes in and his opinion is all like a page and a half. He just goes, listen, this is about keeping kids safe. That's always something you can pay for. The only reason we didn't give money or the state didn't give money here is because it's a church. That doesn't matter. This is about safety. He picks up on a line that was in some of the briefs and in oral arguments that pushed back on the idea of if we can't give money to churches, do we pay for police? Uh, if something happens at a church, do we pay for fire services? And if you say yes, how is this any different? And for Breyer, it's not. So his incredibly minimal point is this is no different than making sure the fire department also protects churches. It has nothing to do with free exercise or establishment violations and just give them the money. And then uh, Sotomayor writes a dissenting opinion and Ginsburg uh, joins on to that. And that gets into much other issues I imagine we'll be touching on. So probably good enough in terms of breaking down the opinions. So we'll leave it there for now. So I am also going to take this in a slightly different direction. And I was just curious, Dan, if you could explain to our listeners what a Blaine Amendment is. Yeah, so these uh, aren't really at issue in this case, but it came up a bunch in terms of the oral arguments and a lot of the news coverage leading up to it. Uh, so largely it has to do with the idea of state constitutions forbidding money going directly to religious uh, education typically or, or churches in general. The initial ones were passed uh, through a congressman, uh, which is Blaine, which is where the name Blaine Amendment comes from. And they're generally interpreted as being uh, incredibly anti-Catholic, in part because you know, mid-19th century, a lot of anti-Catholic sentiments and a lot of uh, Catholic churches were setting up their own schools. So the Blaine Amendments were seen as preventing money going for, to Catholic churches as an anti-Catholic movement. So some people tried to uh, portray the uh, Missouri policy here of not giving money to any church as a Blaine Amendment. Uh, frankly, I think they're not the same thing, uh, in part because the Missouri Constitution goes much further back and uh, addresses these issues well before. That's more or less my opinion on the issue as well. I was just curious what someone who has done more research and someone who's written about this far more than I have would think of it because I've read I've read people's initial reactions. I remember reading initial reactions from a few other bloggers because I write about separation of church and state over at my blog. And 
I read people trying to link the Blaine amendments to this, and I thought that was an interesting kind of stretch to it, especially because as a historian, I knew the exact, I didn't know the exact context of the Blaine amendments, but I knew enough to figure that the idea that these two things are linked is a little bit, is a bit of a stretch. It's an interesting interpretation, and it's an interesting thing to try and apply to this sort of situation where instead of focusing on money for educational institutions, as the Blaine Amendment is often talked about in the modern day, it is something that's purely secular and would it, wouldn't really affect a church in any specific way, aside from the fact that it's money that would be used to reimburse a church. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a question for you, Luciano. Was this, like, people who were making these arguments... We're on the left or the right? So I have friends on the religious spectrums of both sides, so I got to witness people, both atheists and Christians, making the comparison with the Blaine Amendments on both sides. Mostly I noticed it on the right in an attempt to bolster someone's emotional support for the Trinity Church. That that was the way, at least that was the way that I read it as. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but people were conflating this issue and making it something much more than it actually was. Um, that's, that's the way that a lot of writers that I've talked to about this have felt, especially both atheists and even Catholics who've written about this issue as it relates to separation of church and state. I don't know if that's been the sort of reactions that the two of you have noticed on your social media, but at the very least, that's the way it is for me. Yeah, I would definitely second that. I mean, again, seeing across the spectrum from, you know, atheists to Catholics, other forms of Christians and non-Christians, and just a lot of uh, different people making the blame and the comparisons. And I, frankly, I just don't think it's, it's a- adequate or accurate for what happened here, but it, it does seem a lot. And, it does seem like it's largely being used to try to, again, build sympathy for the church. So going back to the, the opinions, I, I would, you basically hinted that you wanted to, you know, you, you were going to go back to Sotomayor, and I actually want to go into Sotomayor's uh, opinion, uh, mostly because I don't know if it's out of, character for her in terms like I'm not very familiar with her church state uh, jurisprudence Uh, but I I think she made a really kind of like wall of separation niche kind of case that I wouldn't say took me aback but that I wasn't really expecting to come in this particular case, uh, and I wonder if you want to expand on you know, what was the scope of her opinion and and what do you think about it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it it's very separationist. Uh, definitely uh, embracing that idea. She even quotes Madison at length uh, throughout her dissenting opinion, and I think part of what really motivates her opinion is. Robert's lack of discussion of the Establishment Clause. So in justifying not giving money to the church in the first place and the fact that the state 
uh, state of Missouri has part of its constitution, this firm separation written into the constitution that no public funds go directly to churches for any purposes, that she takes that seriously. So a good chunk of her dissent, which is missing from the majority opinion, is a look at the effects of the Establishment Clause and not just the Free Exercise Clause on this case. Uh, Trinity Lutheran made the argument that free exercise rights were violated when they were not given the funds solely for being a church. And effectively, Roberts agrees with that logic. But Missouri's defense this whole time and the arguments accepted and made by the lower courts that heard the case were, yeah, the Establishment Clause says you can't give money directly to churches. Like, that's that's been answered. It's not tricky. So what Sotomayor does at length in her dissent is, uh, I jokingly refer to it as out-originaling the originalist, because she's not an originalist, but she goes through. She looks at the debates around the Establishment Clause. She looks at practices before, practices after it was passed, how the history of state-supported religion shifted because originally the Establishment Clause only applied to the federal government, and oh, I forget the number, but a certain number of states had established religions when the First Amendment was ratified. And it wasn't until sort of the first, third to middle of the uh, 19th century that those states ended up stopping the practice of having established religions. And she looks at this, and she looks at the arguments put forth for what the clause was supposed to do, what was meant to avoid, and why the states that dropped established churches did so. And she uses all of that to say it's all about this, the separation to protect religion and to protect politics, that both are separate spheres and they're too important to be intermixed because the intermixing leads to bad things. Uh, this is where she quotes Madison. And she goes through all this. She's like, And that's literally what... Missouri was trying to do is just saying, listen, we're not going to support any church by giving them direct monetary benefits. And that's a principle that the court has established a while ago and upheld and stuck with. And Roberts, by only focusing on the free exercise clause in his opinion, just misses this whole rich legal history that would have called into question some of what he was deciding. And frankly, so, I think she's right. I, I'm also going to talk a little bit about this because this, in my opinion, is it's an unusually separatist reaction in the modern era. I, mm -hmm. I don't know of too many Supreme Court cases that relate directly to separation of church and state in the past, say, five years. I'm, I'm aware of a few. But this is probably the most aggressive separatist statement that I've seen in the times, definitely in the times since I've been writing about separation of church and state issues, because I've only been an atheist for four years now. And before then, I was interested in separation of church and state, but I wasn't, I wasn't super passionate about it. It wasn't something I wrote about. And it is, it's a wonderful separatist statement if you are a supporter of separation of church and state. It is very strong. It definitely states that the church would be using the funds to advance their religion, which is true. That, and the idea that it isn't is, it's understandable, but it's, it's ultimate, the ultimate purpose of the daycare 
is to instill in children belief in God, and not just belief in the God of, say, Albert Einstein, but in the, in the God of Jesus. It is to make children religious. And that's part of the reason why the daycare is owned by a church. That's part of the reason why the daycare is funded by a church. And Justice Sotomayor refuses to let people not see that. And in her statements, she ties the church's playground surface to a Sunday, room, to a Sunday school room's walls or the pews in the church. And that is a good comparison to make. Just because there's not a pastor or a pulpit doesn't mean that the daycare isn't part of a religious organization and specifically a church. The educators who are at the Sunday school, who are at the daycare, are there to teach children, the people who are making use of their services, about Christianity. And she forcefully reminds people that this is what's going on. Absolutely. I'm glad, uh, glad you brought this up. It, it hits on sort of this other theme that I have with looking at separation of church and state, especially at the court, is that so often accommodationists, in my opinion, fail to take seriously a lot of the religious claims that they are claiming to support and uphold. And one of the things I really appreciate about Sotomayor's dissent is very early on she looks at the actual statements of the church. She looks at the school. She looks at the words they use to talk about the, like, the role the daycare plays in their broader faith mission and what the faith mission is. And from there goes, the church itself says you, you can't separate out these things. Who are we on the court to try to separate out? Again, like just because it's not a pulpit or there might not be uh, you have a pastor or someone leading prayer doesn't make this surface and this playground area not part of the broader sort of proselytizing message of the church. And none of that is in Robert's opinion. None of that is in any of the other opinions. It takes the dissent to stop and go, let's look at what the church says is the role of this playground. Let's look how they portray it. And then let's treat them with the dignity of going, you said you mean this. If that is true, then this is clearly part of your religious exercise. But also, it would make the government complicit in supporting that, which is why the Establishment Clause for Sotomayor would be violated and Missouri was right in their decision to not provide the funds. So I wanted to ask Dan what he thought about some of the cases that are related to this. I know that a few scholars have talked about Locke v. Davey, which was a challenge in 2004 to a similar, not to, to not a Blaine Amendment, but to a similar clause in the Washington State Constitution. Would you, do you think that there is a connection between the 2004 case and this case? Uh, absolutely. And the, that case, uh, Lockheed Davis cited uh, throughout, and largely it's cited throughout because Roberts bends over backwards in a lot of ways to say that was a completely different thing. So uh, I'll talk a little bit about that and then how it relates. 
So in that case, uh, Washington State had what they called a promise scholarship. Uh, if you met a certain uh, academic achievement level, students were given a scholarship to use at the school of their choice. They could use it on any school, uh, public, private, religious, none of that mattered. The only restriction is you couldn't use it for, I forget the exact word, but basically devotional theology degrees to train you to become a pastor, a minister, a priest, whatever the case may be. You could study religion, you could take religion courses, that's all fine. But if the degree is to become a religious figure, then the scholarship money can't be used for that. Uh, Joshua Davey got one of these. He wanted to use it to store, uh, study pastoral ministries, and he then was not allowed to use the funds and sued, saying this violates my free exercise rights. And in that case, the court says, there's no violation because not paying for the training of religious leaders is completely consistent with the Establishment Clause. So Roberts points out that we're not talking about the training of religious leaders here. We're talking about a playground service and keeping kids safe on the, on the playground, and he really wants to drive that point home. This is actually where Thomas's separate opinion comes in. Uh, his short concurring opinion says, listen, I think Lockheed Davey was wrong then. It's wrong now. I wish we could overturn it, but we weren't asked to do that. So Thomas is sending signals for more challenges saying, listen, I think we're ready to get rid of this ruling. And he sees the Trinity Lutheran opinion as an important stepping stone towards striking that down. Roberts doesn't say that, but Thomas is telling us that's his interpretation of it. And that actually, it's a good segue to start getting into our last segment. And I mean, I, I want Luciano to have the last word, but I want to throw a quick question into what, now that you have hinted that at least Justice Thomas is hinting at, winking at new potential challenges, what, what do you think is going to be the the aftermath of these case. Uh, how do you think uh, the people who uh, certainly have want to unbuild uh, the wall of separation uh, are going to move now, uh, given that this was a friendly-ish opinion, but not necessarily uh, in the scope that many would have liked? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the specifics are going to be hard to call without cases. I think we're going to see more cases, though, being petitioned to the Supreme Court on free exercise claims. And I think this is sort of uh, more of a longer line of recent opinions uh, on other issues. Uh, I would go back even to you know, Town of Greece versus Galilee, which had to do with prayer at town hall meetings uh, in upstate New York, uh, not, you know, outside of Rochester where the court said, oh, that's fine. It doesn't matter that 97% of the prayers were Christian. It's, it's non-sectarian, which is sort of problematic. But I think that opinion really paved the way for the court's Hobby Lobby ruling, which in and of itself starts to rewrite a lot of case law around religion, as Alito in that case just goes above and beyond to talk about the religious rights of closely held corporations, even of the size of Hobby Lobby. And then that's followed up by uh, you know, just 
letting other programs try to assert their religion. And we're really seeing this sort of shift where for a long time the court treated the free exercise clause as a way of protecting minority religions from sort of majority discrimination and making sure that people can practice their faith. But that, that line through Hobby Lobby and now through Trinity Lutheran, even though Hobby Lobby wasn't at issue in this case or brought up in this case, shows a court that's much more willing to allow majority religions to claim free exercise rights and find ways to further assert themselves into the public sphere, which has long been a goal of a lot of uh, especially right-leaning religious organizations in the United States to reclaim that public space. And it seems like this is one more step in that direction. And the, the court already for next term has accepted, uh, I forget the specific name, but it's the one of the same-sex marriage cake cases coming out of uh, Colorado where you know, Baker was sued for not providing a cake for a same-sex mar- uh, a wedding, claiming I don't, my religion doesn't support this. And regardless of what the court does, Trinity Lutheran is going to have to be a part of that discussion, given the way it's framed free exercise claims. So I think that one of the next things that's going to happen is I, I agree with Dan's analysis. I believe that some of the next things that are going to happen are ultimately related to the sorts of cases that the Supreme Court's going to see. I believe that one of the Supreme Court cases that's pro- not one of the Supreme Court cases, but one of the cases that the Supreme Court's eventually going to see relates to prayer again, because I know in North Carolina there was a recent controversy where a federal level, I believe it was a federal level appeals court, sided <coughs> sided with I think it was the Freedom from Religion Foundation, but I'm not entirely sure, where um, it was talking about uh, prayer practices prior to town commissioner meetings. And it <coughs> it's going to matter in the next couple of months, the sorts of cases that we see. This Supreme Court case was probably a signal of the future of the conversations that we have about separation of church and state in this country. And I think that this move definitely emboldens people on the religious right, whether their objectives are as nefarious as gaining public funds for religious schools or as innocuous as this is, because I strongly disagree with the ruling that happened here, but I also understand that at the very least, this issue probably didn't deserve to blow up in the way that it did. And also that this is probably genuinely a relatively innocent instance where church wanted public funds, not for any malicious purpose, but just because it would have been more convenient to have access to taxpayer dollars to be able to pay for something instead of using their own tax-free dollars to do it. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Like, there's, is to not, even if, you know, you disagree with the opinion, to not run and demonize the church. It's just, they had a playground, they wanted to resurface, there was a program, of course they applied for funds. Like, there's, that's not in and of itself bad, and I don't think it was part of this, any sort of larger scheme or whatever, but now that the case has been decided, the case itself becomes 
part of the larger conversation. And it, it's hard to look at this ruling and not think vouchers, especially with the current Secretary of Education and a lot of the push again. So I imagine another, another one of the issues is also public prayer, but vouchers as well for uh, private schools, especially private religious schools. Well, I think that is a good note to close. Uh, I want to thank Professor Tagliarina for joining us. It was a very good conversation, and I learned a lot, uh, particularly about the nuances of justice opinions. And yeah, thank you for yeah, being at the Benito Juarez Experience. Thank you for listening. Remember, subscribe to the podcast, review the podcast, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter. We'll be here next week. This was Juan Navarro Rivera. Luciano Gonzalez.